Chapter Two of Tales of a Traveler by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter Two Adventure of My Uncle. Many years since, a long time before the French Revolution, my uncle had passed several months at Paris. The English and French were on better terms, in those days, than at present, and mingled cordially together in society. The English went abroad to spend money then, and the French were always ready to help them. They go abroad to save money at present, and that they can do without French assistance. Perhaps the travelling English were fewer and choicer then, than at present, when the whole nation has broke loose and inundated the continent. At any rate, they circulated more readily and currently in foreign society, and my uncle, during his residence in Paris, made many very intimate acquaintances among the French noblesse. Some time afterwards he was making a journey in the winter time, in that part of Normandy called the Pays de Coup, when, as evening was closing in, he perceived the turrets of an ancient chateau rising out of the trees of its walled park, each turret with its high conical roof of grey slate, like a candle with an extinguisher on it. "'To whom does that chateau belong, my friend?' cried my uncle to a meagre but fiery postillion, who, with tremendous jack-boots and cocked hat, was floundering on before him. "'To Monsignor the Marquis de,' said the postillion, touching his hat, partly out of respect to my uncle, and partly out of reverence to the noble name pronounced. My uncle recollected the Marquis for a particular friend in Paris, who had often expressed a wish to see him at his paternal chateau. My uncle was an old traveller, one that knew how to turn things to account. He revolved for a few moments in his mind how agreeable it would be to his friend the Marquis to be surprised in this sociable way by a pop visit, and how much more agreeable to himself to get into snug quarters in the chateau and have a relish of that Marquis's well-known kitchen and a smack of his superior champagne and burgundy rather than take up with the miserable lodgment and miserable fare of a country inn. In a few minutes, therefore, the meagre postillion was cracking his whip like a very devil, or like a true Frenchman, up the long straight avenue that led to the chateau. You have no doubt all seen French chateaus, as everybody travels in France nowadays. This was one of the oldest, standing naked and alone, in the midst of a desert of gravel walks and cold stone terraces, with a cold-looking formal garden, cut into angles and rhomboids, and a cold, leafless park, divided geometrically by straight alleys, and two or three noseless, cold-looking statues without any clothing, and fountains spouting cold water enough to make one's teeth chatter. At least such was the feeling they imparted on the wintry day of my uncle's visit, though in hot summer weather, I warrant there was glare enough to scorch one's eyes out. The smacking of the postillion's whip, 
which grew more and more intense the nearer they approached, frightened a flight of pigeons out of the dovecote, and rooks out of the roofs, and finally a crew of servants out of the chateau, with the marquis at their head. He was enchanted to see my uncle, for his chateau, like the house of our worthy host, had not many more guests at the time than they could accommodate. So he kissed my uncle on each cheek, after the French fashion, and ushered him into the castle. The Marquis did the honors of his house with the urbanity of his country. In fact, he was proud of his old family chateau, for part of it was extremely old. There was a tower and chapel that had been built almost before the memory of man, but the rest was more modern, the castle having been nearly demolished during the wars of the League. The Marquis dwelt upon this event with great satisfaction, and seemed really to entertain a grateful feeling towards Henry the Fourth, for having thought his paternal mansion worth battering down. He had many stories to tell of the prowess of his ancestors, and several skull-caps, helmets, and crossbows to show, and diverse huge boots and buff jerkins that had been worn by the leaguers. Above all, there was a two-handled sword, which he could hardly wield, but which he displayed as a proof that there had been giants in his family. In truth, he was but a small descendant from such great warriors, when you looked at their bluff visages and brawny limbs, as depicted in their portraits, and then at the little marquis, with his spindle shanks, his sallow lanthorn visage flanked with a pair of powdered ear-locks, or ailes de pigeon, that seemed ready to fly away with it, you would hardly believe him to be one of the same race. But when you looked at the eyes that sparkled out like a beetle's from each side of his hooked nose, you saw at once that he inherited all the fiery spirit of his forefathers. In fact, a Frenchman's spirit never exhales. However, his body may dwindle. It rather rarefies and grows more inflammable as the earthly particles diminish and I have seen valor enough and a little fiery-headed French dwarf to have furnished out a tolerable giant. When once the Marquis, as he was wont, put on one of his old helmets that were stuck up in his hall, though his head no more filled it than a dry pea, its peas cod, yet his eyes sparkled from the bottom of the iron cavern with the brilliancy of carbuncles, and when he poised the ponderous two-handled sword of his ancestors, you would have thought you saw the doughty little David wielding the sword of Goliath, which was unto him like a weaver's beam. However, gentlemen, I am dwelling too long on this description of the Marquis and his chateau, which you must excuse me. He was an old friend of my uncle's, and whenever my uncle told the story, he was always fond of talking a great deal about his host. Poor little Marquis! He was of that handful of gallant courtiers, who made such a devoted but hopeless stand in the cause of their sovereign, in the chateau of the Tulleries, against the eruption of the mob on the sad 10th of August. He displayed the valor of a pre-French chevalier to the last, flourished feebly his little court sword, with a sa-sa in face of a whole legion of sans-culettes, but was pinned to the wall like a butterfly, by the pike of a poissard, and his heroic soul was borne up to heaven on his ailes de pigeon. But all this has nothing to do with my story. 
to the point then when the hour arrived for retiring for the night my uncle was shown to his room in a venerable old tower it was the oldest part of the chateau and had at ancient times been the donjon or stronghold of course the chamber was none of the best the marquis had put him there however because he knew him to be a traveller of taste and fond of antiquities and also because the better apartments were already occupied indeed he perfectly reconciled my uncle to his quarters by mentioning the great personages who had once inhabited them all of whom were in some way or other connected with the family if he would take his word for it john balliol or as he was called jean de belleisle had died of chagrin in his very chamber on hearing of the success of his rival robert the bruce at the battle of bonnetborn and when he added that the duke de guise had slept in it during the wars of the league my uncle was fain to facilitate himself upon being honoured with such distinguished quarters the night was shrewd and windy and the chamber none of the warmest an old long-faced long-bodied servant in quaint livery who attended upon my uncle threw down an armful of wood beside the fireplace gave a queer look about the room and then wished him bon repos with a grimace and a shrug that would have been suspicious from any other than an old french servant the chamber had indeed a wild crazy look enough to strike any one who had read romances with apprehension and foreboding the windows were high and narrow and once been loopholes but had been rudely enlarged as well as the extreme thickness of the walls would permit and the ill-fitted casements rattled to every breeze you would have thought on a windy night some of the old leaguers were tramping and clanking about the apartment in their huge boots and rattling spurs a door which stood ajar and like a true french door would stand ajar in spite of every reason and effort to the contrary opened upon a long dark corridor that led the lord knows whither and seemed just made for ghosts to air themselves in when they turned out of their graves at midnight the wind would spring up into a hoarse murmur through this passage and creak the door to and fro as if some dubious ghost were balancing in its mind whether to come in or not in a word it was precisely the kind of comfortless apartment that a ghost if ghosts there were in that chateau would single out for its favourite lounge my uncle however though a man accustomed to meet with strange adventures apprehended none at the time he made several attempts to shut the door but in vain not that he apprehended anything for he was too old a traveller to be daunted by a wild-looking apartment but the night as i have said was cold and gusty something like the present and the wind howled about the old turret pretty much as it does round this old mansion at this moment and the breeze from the long dark corridor came in as damp and chilly as if from a dungeon my uncle therefore since he could not close the door threw a quantity of wood on the fire which soon sent up a flame in the great white-mouthed chimney that illumined the whole chamber and made the shadow of the tongs on the opposite wall look like a long-legged giant my uncle now clambered on top of the half-score of mattresses which form a french bed and which stood in a deep recess and tucking himself snugly in 
and burying himself up to the chin in his bedclothes, he lay looking at the fire, listening to the wind, and chuckling to think how knowingly he had come over his friend the Marquise for a night's lodgings, and so he fell asleep. He had not taken above half of his first nap, and he was awakened by the clock of the chateau, in the turret over his chamber, which struck midnight. It was just such an old clock as ghosts are fond of. It had a deep, dismal tone, and struck so slowly and tediously that my uncle thought it would never have done. He counted and counted till he was confident he counted thirteen, and then it stopped. The fire had burnt low, and the blaze of the last faggot was almost expiring, burning in small blue flames, which now and then lengthened up into little white gems, which now and then lengthened up into little white gleams. My uncle lay with his eyes half closed, and his nightcap drawn almost down to his nose. His fancy was already wandering, and began to mingle up the present scene with the creator of Vesuvius, the French opera, the Colosseum at Rome, Dolly's chop-house in London, and all the farrago of noted places with which the brain of a traveller is crammed. In a word, he was just falling asleep. Suddenly he was aroused by the sound of footsteps that appeared to be slowly pacing along the corridor. My uncle, as I have often heard him say himself, was a man not easily frightened, so he lay quiet, supposing that this might be some other guest, or some servant on his way to bed. The footsteps, however, approached the door. The door gently opened, whether of its own accord, or whether pushed open, my uncle could not distinguish. A figure all in white glided in. It was a female, tall and stately in person, and of a most commanding air. Her dress was of an ancient fashion, ample in volume and sweeping the floor. She walked up to the fireplace without regarding my uncle, who raised his nightcap with one hand, and stared earnestly at her. She remained for some time, standing by the fire, which, flashing up at intervals, cast blue and white gleams of light that enabled my uncle to remark her appearance minutely. Her face was ghastly pale, and perhaps rendered still more so by the bluish light of the fire. It possessed beauty, but its beauty was saddened by care and anxiety. There was the look of one accustomed to trouble, but of one whom trouble could not cast down nor subdue, for there was still the predominating air of proud unconquerable resolution such at least was the opinion formed by my uncle and he considered himself a great physiognomist the figure remained as i said for some time by the fire putting out first one hand then the other then each foot alternately as if warming itself for your ghosts if ghost it really was are apt to be cold my uncle furthermore remarked that it wore high-heeled shoes, after an ancient fashion, with paste or diamond buckles that sparkled as though they were alive. At length the figure turned gently round, casting a glassy look about the apartment, which, as it passed over my uncle, made his blood run cold and chilled the very marrow in his bones, and then stretched its arms toward heaven, clasped its hands, and wringing them in a supplicating manner, glided slowly out of the room. My uncle lay for some time meditating on his visitation, 
for as he remarked when he told me the story though a man of firmness he was also a man of reflection and did not reject the thing because it was out of the regular course of events however being as i have before said a great traveller and accustomed to strange adventures he drew his nightcap resolutely over his eyes turned his back to the door hoisted the bedclothes high over his shoulders and gradually fell asleep how long he slept he could not say when he was awakened by the voice of some one at his bedside he turned round and beheld the old french servant with his earlocks and tight buckles on each side of a long lanthorn face on which habit had deeply wrinkled an everlasting smile he made a thousand grimaces and asked a thousand pardons for disturbing monsieur but the morning was considerably advanced while my uncle was dressing he called vaguely to mind the visitor of the preceding night he asked the ancient domestic what lady was in the habit of rambling about this part of the chateau at night the old valet shrugged his shoulders as high as his head laid one hand on his bosom threw open the other with every finger extended made a most whimsical grimace which he meant to be complimentary Quote, it was not for him to know anything of les brave fortunes of monsieur End quote. my uncle saw there was nothing satisfactory to be learnt in this quarter after breakfast he was walking with the marquis through the modern apartments of the chateau sliding over the well-waxed floors of silken saloons amidst furniture rich in gilding and brocade until they came to a long picture gallery containing many portraits some in oil and some in chalks here was an ample field for the eloquence of his host who had all the family pride of a nobleman of the ancient regime there was not a grand name in normandy and hardly one in france that was not in some way or other connected with his house my uncle stood listening with inward impatience resting sometimes on one leg sometimes on the other as the little marquis decanted with his usual fire and vivacity on the achievements of his ancestors whose portraits hung along the wall from the martial deeds of the stern warriors in steel to the gallantries and intrigues of the blue-eyed gentlemen with fair smiling faces powdered earlocks laced ruffles and pink and blue silk coats and breeches not forgetting the conquests of the lovely shepherdesses with hoop petticoats and waists no thicker than an hourglass who appeared ruling over their sheep and their swains with dainty crooks decorated with fluttering ribbons in the midst of his friend's discourse my uncle's eyes rested on a full-length portrait which struck him as being the very counterpart of his visitor of the preceding night methinks said he pointing to it i have seen the original of this portrait pardon moi replied the marquis politely that can hardly be as the lady has been dead more than a hundred years that was the beautiful duchess de longueville who figured during the minority of louis the fourteenth and was there anything remarkable in her history never was questioned more unlucky the little marquis immediately threw himself into the attitude of a man about to tell a long story in fact my uncle had pulled upon himself the whole history of the civil war of the fronde in which the beautiful duchess had played so distinguished a part turin coligny 
Mazarin were called up from their graves to grace his narration, nor were the affairs of the Vercados, nor the chivalry of the Perteshars, nor the chivalry of the Pert Cocher forgotten. My uncle began to wish himself a thousand leagues off from the Marquis and his merciless memory, when suddenly the little man's recollections took a more interesting turn. He was relating the imprisonment of the Duc de Longueville with the princes Condé and Conti in the Chateau of Vincennes, and the ineffectual efforts of the Duchess to rouse the sturdy Normans to their rescue. He had come to that part where she was invested by the royal forces in the Chateau of Dieppe, and in imminent danger of falling into their hands. The spirit of the Duchess, proceeded the Marquis, rose with her trials. It was astonishing to see so delicate and beautiful a being buffet so resolutely with hardship. She determined on a desperate means of escape. One dark, unruly night, she issued secretly out of a small postern gate of the castle, which the enemy had neglected to guard. She was followed by her female attendants, a few domestics, and some gallant cavaliers who still remained faithful to her fortunes. Her object was to gain a small port about two leagues distant, where she had privately provided a vessel for her escape in case of emergency. The little band of fugitives were obliged to perform the distance on foot. When they arrived at the port, the wind was high and stormy, the tide contrary. The vessel anchored far off in the road, and no means of getting on board, but by a fishing shallop that lay tossing like a cockle-shell on the edge of the surf. The Duchess determined to risk the attempt. The seamen endeavored to dissuade her by the imminence of her danger on shore, and the magnanimity of her spirit urged her on. She had to be borne to the shallop in the arms of a mariner. Such was the violence of the wind and waves, that he faltered, lost his foothold, and let his precious burden fall into the sea. The Duchess was nearly drowned, but partly through her own struggles, partly by the exertions of the seamen, she got to land. As soon as she had a little recovered strength, she insisted on renewing the attempt. The storm, however, had by this time become so violent as to set all efforts at defiance. To delay was to be discovered and taken prisoner. As the only resource left, she procured horses, mounted with her female attendants, en groupe, behind the gallant gentlemen who accompanied her, and scoured the country to seek some temporary asylum. Well, the Duchess, continued the Marquis, laying his forefinger on my uncle's breast to arouse his flagging attention. Well, the Duchess, poor lady, was wandering amid the tempest in this disconsolate manner. She arrived at this chateau. Her approach caused some uneasiness, for the clattering of a troop of horse at dead of night up the avenue of a lonely chateau in those unsettled times and in a troubled part of the country, was enough to occasion alarm. A tall, broad-shouldered chasseur, armed to the teeth, galloped ahead and announced the name of the visitor. All uneasiness was dispelled. The household turned out with flambeau to receive her, and never did torches gleam on a more weather-beaten, travel-stained band than came tramping into the court. Such pale, careworn faces such bedraggled dresses as the poor duchess and her females presented, 
each seated behind her cavalier, while half-drenched, half-drowsy pages in attendance seemed ready to fall from their horses with sleep and fatigue. The Duchess was received with a hearty welcome by my ancestors. She was ushered into the hall of the chateau, and the fire soon crackled and blazed to cheer herself and her train, and every spit and stew-pan was put in requisition to prepare ample refreshments for the wayfarers. She had a right to our hospitalities, continued the little Marquis, drawing himself up with a slight degree of stateliness, for she was related to our family. I'll tell you how it was. Her father, Henry de Bourbon, Prince of Conde. But did the Duchess pass the night in the chateau? said my uncle rather abruptly, terrified at the idea of getting involved in one of the Marquis' genealogical discussions. Oh, as to the Duchess, she was put into the apartment you occupied last night, which at that time was a kind of state apartment. Her followers were quartered in the chambers opening upon the neighboring corridor, and her favorite page slept in an adjoining closet. Up and down the corridor walked the great chasseur, who had announced her arrival, and who acted as a kind of sentinel or guard. He was a dark, stern, powerful-looking fellow, and as the light of a lamp in the corridor fell upon his deeply marked face and sinewy form, he seemed capable of defending the castle with his single arm. It was a rough, rude night about that time of the year. About this time of the year, apropos, now I think of it, last night was the anniversary of her visit. I may well remember the precise date for it was a night not to be forgotten by our house. There is a singular tradition concerning in our family. Here the Marquis hesitated, and a cloud seemed to gather about his bushy eyebrows. There is a tradition that a strange occurrence took place that night, a strange, mysterious, inexplicable occurrence. Here he checked himself and paused. Did it relate to that lady? inquired my uncle eagerly. It was past the hour of midnight, resumed the Marquis, when the whole chateau. Here he paused again. My uncle made a movement of anxious curiosity. Excuse me, said the Marquis, a slight blush streaking his sullen visage. There are some circumstances connected with our family history, which I do not like to relate. That was a rude period, a time of great crimes among great men. For you know... High blood, when it runs wrong, will not run tamely, like the blood of the canal, poor lady. But I have a little family pride that, excuse me, we will change the subject if you please. My uncle's curiosity was piqued. The pompous and magnificent introduction had led him to expect something wonderful in the story, to which it served as a kind of avenue. He had no idea of being cheated out of it by a sudden fit of unreasonable squeamishness. Besides, being a traveller, in quest of information, considered it his duty to inquire into everything. The Marquis, however, evaded every question. Well, said my uncle, a little petulantly, whatever you may think of it, I saw that lady last night. The Marquis stepped back and gazed at him with surprise. She paid me a visit in my bedchamber. The Marquis pulled out his snuff-box, with a shrug and a smile, taking it no doubt for an awkward piece of English pleasantry, 
which politeness required him to be charmed with my uncle went on gravely however and related the whole circumstance the marquis heard him through with profound attention holding his snuff-box unopened in his hand when the story was finished he tapped on the lid of his box deliberately took a long sonorous pinch of snuff bah said the marquis and walked toward the other end of the gallery here the narrator paused the company waited for some time for him to resume his narrative but he continued silent well said the inquisitive gentleman and what did your uncle say then nothing replied the other and what did the marquis say farther nothing and is that all that is all said the narrator filling a glass of wine i surmise said the shrewd old gentleman with the waggish nose i surmise it was the old housekeeper walking her rounds to see that all was right bah said the narrator my uncle was too much accustomed to strange sights not to know a ghost from a housekeeper there was a murmur round the table half of merriment half of disappointment i was inclined to think the old gentleman had really an after-part of his story in reserve but he sipped his wine and said nothing more and there was an odd expression about his dilapidated countenance that left me in doubt whether he were in drollery or earnest egad said the knowing gentleman with the flexible nose the story of your uncle puts me in mind of one that used to be told of an aunt of mine by the mother's side though i don't know that it will bear a comparison as the good lady was not quite so prone to meet with strange adventures but at any rate you shall have it End of chapter two recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida